Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. This is a CBC podcast. Although this is being released at a different date, uh, it is currently being recorded on the spookiest day of the year. and uh, January uh, 6th, the, day, <laughs> the, the most likely day for somebody to die, That's, statistically. That is that is true. We did cover that on a, on a recent Feel Good Friday, but no, uh, I am referring to uh, Halloween. It is the 31st of October. Uh, and uh, what better way to ring in the spookiest day of the year than to sit down and have a conversation all about... Blood. Oh. Uh, 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 uh. Uh, we're joined by Dr. David Conrad. Uh, Dr. David Conrad completed his medical education at Dalhousie University right here in Halifax. Whoop, whoop. Before joining the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine in 2015, where he is the division head of, here I go, I'm going to fucking butcher it, hematopathology? Hematopathology? Really? Hematopathology? Hematopathology. Okay. Uh, At the IWK Health Center and the section head for molecular hematopathology at the Molecular Diagnostic Laboratory for Nova Scotia Health Authority. Um, What is hematopathology? I've never, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever heard the word. Nope. That's the first for me. Yeah. All all the more reason to talk about blood today, I guess. Absolutely. So, Anyone who does pathology uh, as a career in medicine, um, they focus on the diagnosis of disease from, you know, tissue from lab testing rather than clinical diagnosis um, that, you know, a family doctor would do in person. And a hematopathologist would be a pathologist who specializes in diagnoses related to the blood system, blood cells. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, uh, a lot of leukemia, lymphoma. Some uh, like sickle cell disease, um, right? Clotting uh, disorders, those sorts of things. Do you have this? Might not, this might not be a question for you, but do you have the do you do you know the etymology of hemato? Like, um, is it like I know hemophilia, hema, hematosis, hematosis. We got a lot, a lot of hema in yeah. blood. So hemoglobin is hema. A lot is, of hema is hemato. Um, is is that like the the like Latin root word for blood? I think heme is probably the the root that gives that, that where the name comes from. Yeah. Cool. Uh, doctors tend to be, uh, th- doctors tend to be very proficient in Latin. I mean, from a, medical, from a, from a, from a medical May perspective. Um, I, I love this because it's ba- <clears throat> guys, this is basically studying the pathology of lazy rivers. 
Oh, for that's right. Yeah, Brian loves sakes, Brian, Brian loves a lazy I mean, river analogy. The blood um, system is really a, just a big lazy river. I mean, I mean, yeah. a, a, for once, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I feel like sometimes it's an aggressive, yeah, <laughs> depending yeah. on a, depending on your blood yeah, pressure. It's class four. <laughs> um, you guys have seen I'm, the Magic School Bus. It I is have, yeah. basically I have, yeah. a lazy river. Um, I am curious, and I'm curious just because I I don't know if I've ever had the opportunity to to have a conversation with somebody about this topic. Um, with somebody who, who is probably, uh, you know, very, um, very adept at it. Um, why is, I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're familiar with Theranos, the whole Theranos story. You familiar with that? Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. yeah. Like, so yeah. I, so I, I, I listened to this podcast, uh, series, like a, like an investigative journalism series about it. And, and, uh, and I was, and the whole thing about being able to diagnose this, like, crazy spectrum of diseases through like a speck of blood, like a very mm-hmm. small amount of blood. Do you know in your, from your expertise, like why that actually isn't possible? Like why, why do you need so, why do you need so much blood um, in order to diagnose something? Like what, why do you need that quantity of blood to test for, you know, I guess whatever you're testing for. Sure. And, and, Ironically, I'm, I'm helping a, a professor at Dal who's invented a, a handheld blood analyzer that can do a lot of testing off of just a pinprick volume of blood. So this stuff's not science fiction, like it's, it's coming. Um, but to, I guess to answer your question is the volume of blood that we collect relates to the volume of blood needed to run on the current analyzer technology we have. Mm. You know, they're, they're big machines. They have a big dead volume, which means... You know, there's a long tube that takes that draws the sample up into the analyzer. And, you know, that that's a volume that's not necessary for the testing, but it's necessary to, you know, fill that tube to get the uh, the blood to where it needs to be. So, for example, the, the analyzer I'm helping to work on, um, just a pinprick of blood is, is put on a, a flat surface that has an optic sensor under it. And there is no dead volume. Just that one drop of blood, the, the, really the whole thing is examined all at once. Mm. And so all the testing is done from like 20 microliters of blood, which is a 50th of a milliliter. So, Whoa, so cool. I guess, I guess a follow up on that is what kind of issues, like per, uh, perception issues, did that whole Theranos debacle, does it, does that pose to the further develop? Like, like you said, it's not science fiction, it's, it's coming. Um, did that whole debacle kind of slow down this field at all of trying to make advancements in that because of the, you know, all the lies and deception and all that stuff? Um, my understanding is there's, you know, there's very few people or companies that are in that sphere to, to, to develop a, a catch-all machine that'll do many, many tests at once. There are a lot of companies that do like single tests or a, just a handful of tests uh, at what we would call point of care or or bedside analyzers that require a small volume of blood and will deliver test results very quickly. So I'm not sure if Theranos derailed that because I'm not sure many people were were trying at the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know our, the company I, I help with is one of just a few that we're familiar with in, in the world. Um, and the, the guy who invented this, he developed all brand new technology to be able to run these tests in such small volumes. And, and that's really what didn't happen with Theranos. They just tried to take current technology and make it smaller and put it in a smaller box. But mm. 
you, you can't, you can't, you have, it really, the solution there is to come up with something smaller in the first place. You can't just cram a bunch of stuff into a smaller box. Mm-hmm. How, are, how are things like, um, or I guess, how is machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies um, influencing the development of these types of technologies? Um, that's a good question. We, we have um, one of the projects we're looking at developing uh, with this new analyzer is to test uh, a number of analytes that would be uh, positive or negative predictably if you have an infection. Um, they wouldn't identify the organism, but you know there's things that show that you have inflammation or that you've got breakdown of cells or something like that. And one of our ideas is to use artificial intelligence to identify different patterns of results in a panel of these tests uh, and, and give a probability that you know you have an infection, yes or no, and maybe even it's viral or it's bacterial or it's fungal or something else based on these patterns. Mm. So yeah, I think ma- machine learning is going to have a, a big role, I think, in the interpretation phase. Mm. I, I, I don't know about the development phase, but um, admittedly, that, that certainly is not my background. I'm not an engineer mm-hmm. or manufacturer by any stretch. Right. I, I would love to. I would love to kind of dive into the ins and outs of of lab medicine because, I, like, when I think about medicine, and when I think about the way that the general population probably thinks about medicine or thinks about you know physicians or doctors, the the first thing that pops to mind is like the you know the your GP that you go into their office and you sit down with them, and you have a conversation, and they look at you and they you know they bump your knee and check your reflexes and and look down into your throat and tell tell you you're good or tell you you're bad and then that's it you know off you go uh i don't think lab medicine really gets much spotlight you know i feel like the doctors in in lab medicine it's kind of like i don't know what the fuck do you guys do you know like, are you like is there is there i guess i guess that my first question there it, when 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 you know diving into lab medicine is how much of your job um how much of your job actually consists of of um like clinician to patient in in real life interaction is there much of that or is most of your job kind of behind closed doors in rooms that are like you know not accessible to the the general pop you know general population what does what does a day in in lab medicine look like sure so i mean generally speaking there's very little patient contact for a, a pathologist or a lab medicine person um i'd say the most common reason to be in touch with a patient would be if you know, they had a blood test done and it, it gives back a critical value, like something that's dangerously abnormal. And if, un, if if the patient doesn't know about it or it's not addressed right away, the patient could fall seriously ill or, or worse. Um, so at the moment, if those results come in and the doctor who ordered the test is not available, they, they go to the pathologist on call. And, and for example, I would call and, and talk to the family or talk to the patient. So aside from that, there is relatively little opportunity um, to interact with patients. Um, we do spend most of our time, uh, I mean, I'm in my office, which has one desk, one computer, one door, no windows. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't have uh, team meetings in here. I, doors usually open, lab personnel come and go, but mm. I, I largely sit at my microscope and review data on my computer screen and, and, and uh, work on paperwork. And then when this and when the sun comes up, you go to sleep in that coffin behind you there. And uh, when the sun goes down, you're free to you know roam about. Uh, I, I have I have another office that does have a window. Uh, this one in the basement. There are no windows on this whole floor down in the basement. 
He it, does take direct sunlight. <laughs> so, yeah. so out of curiosity, um, like how often in a week or a month are you having to have those types of conversations with patients when they have a negative result in, or, a, or, or a critical result and you have to go and you know, deliver that information to them? Yeah, I've, I've been tracking this lately. And uh, at the IWK, which is a pediatric and uh, maternal health uh, center, it's, it's not too very common at all. I think we've had maybe eight or 10 episodes of uh, a critical result um, being detected and the ordering physician not available since june so it's you know it's it's one or two a month it's it's not common um i also do call coverage for the uh, nova scotia health and qe2 health sciences center um it's a little more common it's usually like a high white blood cell count or a low hemoglobin or or platelet count or uh, if people are on blood thinners and they're having their um their blood monitored for those sometimes those can get a little out of whack and, and the results too high and we call for that as well um, but it, it's not a terribly common thing. Um, we, we don't get a lot of face to face with patients. I, I got a. This is kind of a random question that might be a little bit off topic here. But when I go get my blood work done, and I mm. sit down in the chair, and the nice uh, lady or gentleman, but you know, puts the thing around my arm, and they slap my arm and get the vein and stick it in. Is that a nurse, or is that, uh, or is that what? What is what is their position? What's their like? What's their role? The people that are typically taking blood at a, at like a blood clinic. So you'd call them a phlebotomist. Oh, wow. Sweet name. <laughs> phlebotomist. Specifically someone who draws blood, but they may have been trained as a nurse, um, may have been trained as a laboratory technologist or uh, maybe a laboratory assistant, but there's also just direct phlebotomy courses where that's uh, the extent of their, their job. They can come from a diverse background, I think. Cool. Yeah. I never thought about it like that. I was kind of, I guess I was just assumed it was nurses, but now talking about this with you, I'm, I, I just had that thought like, oh, you know what? I feel like those people might just, might not just be nurses. Um, They're phlebotomists. Like I, I have, I have, uh, I have long been probably for the past like five or six years, just been like really, really fascinated by, um, really fascinated by cell biology and, and um, just like the way that just, I mean, really just like, I mean, biology, I guess in general, just like the way that our body functions and physiology. And, um, I am, I feel like the average person out there, I mean, I mean, because we have, everybody has a thousand things to do. And I feel like when you've got a thousand things to do and your, 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 your science education kind of, you know, more or less stopped at grade 10 or 11, you know, blood is just like, it's the, it's like your body juice. It's uh, you know, it's just that thing that's, that's pumping around in there and like your heart's moving. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to tell your heart to pump. It just does its thing. It moves around. And unless you're sick, um, with some type of blood disorder, you're probably not thinking about it. If I'm at a, if I'm at a party and you're there and I say, Hey, tell me, tell me, uh, you know, tell me what you do. Tell me about your job. And you, t- you tell me, you know, you're a, uh, man, I hematopathol, hema Hematopathology. It's a hard one. It is. A, it is. A, yeah. It is a tough one. Um, what are some of the things about about blood, like the way that it functions within your body, um, and and some of its roles that that you're just like, man, you know, you you know what you want to know. You want to know this. This. These are these are kind of kind of like some of the cool functions that you're just like never even thinking about when it comes to the blood that's circulating around your body. 
Yeah, sure. I actually teach this to the medical school. So um, I'm fresh off my lecture circuit. Awesome. Um, if we think about what blood does, it's helpful to think of it in terms of the cells that are in blood and then really everything else, which is mostly water, some salts and proteins. Um, so as far as the cells go, we have red blood cells and white blood cells. Um, red blood cells are basically bags of hemoglobin and their primary job is to transport oxygen to your tissues. So your blood flows through your lungs and as you breathe, oxygen diffuses across your tissues and is picked up by hemoglobin in your red cells. And then your blood circulates from your lungs to other parts of your body, especially the brain and uh, other vital organs. And that oxygen then is transferred to those tissues and that cycle repeats constantly. And then there is some removal of, of, of waste products as well. But mostly red blood cells uh, bring oxygen to your tissues. And then the white blood cells are a bit more complex. There are multiple different types. We have what we call lymphoid cells and myeloid cells. And the lymphoid cells are essentially the cells that make antibodies and the cells that fight virally infected cells or could fight cancers as well. So those are lymphocytes and, and specifically they're called B cells and T cells. So when you get a vaccine, one of the main things that a vaccine does is it uh, activates those cells so you might make antibodies against the flu, for example, mm. or make T cells that can recognize this year's flu because you got the vaccine. So if you mm. are exposed to the flu later on, you've already educated those cells to be able to respond right away. Mm. And then there's what we call the myeloid cells, which they're, they kind of do more of a general um, kind of foot soldier role for the immune system. And they sit in our tissues and they're the first line of defense if you were to have an infection cut your skin, something like that. And, and they cause inflammation, which is really what gets a good immune system, uh, immune response going in the first place. It recruits more cells, it activates more cells. Um, and they, so they, they, they react very, very quickly and help to engage other parts of the immune system. So that, that's basically what the cells do. Um, we also have what are called platelets and you could call them cells, I guess. They don't have a nucleus, so they're really small fragments of, of other cells. And, they're like the bricks in a brick wall, if you think of a brick wall as a clot. So if you were to mm. cut yourself and you need to form a clot, the platelets are what form uh, what we call a primary hemostatic plug. They plug up that hole and stop the bleeding. So they're in your blood as well. And then we have the fluid and, and the salts and proteins. So, um, you know, our blood pressure is, is uh, obviously a result of the contents of our, uh, our circulatory system. And the amount of proteins in there helps to dictate how much fluid is held in our circulation and, and how much can leak out. And, you know, ideally not too much leaks out. Um, but also the proteins in there are constantly being made and, and delivered to different parts of the body. That's in part how antibodies get through the body and travel to different sites where they're needed most. Um, and there's oodles of other important proteins in there. Mm. How much blood? In a nutshell, how, how much, uh, uh, just, I, I feel like I've heard these before, but, but I, I'm just kind of curious as a refresher, how much blood do we, does, does a, does a typical person have in their body at one time and how much blood are we capable of losing mm. before, uh, before things go really bad? And if you can do it in pints of beer, so we can, uh, have <laughs> so a that reference. I can really understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so <laughs> Average uh, adult is probably around, you know, five liters, depending on their body size. 
and how much you lose, that's a tricky one. I mean, acutely, if you lose blood very quickly, your body will respond quickly and, um, mm. and experience negative side effects in, in a rapid way. But if you were to, for example, have a slow bleed in your gut, uh, chronically lose blood and over time become very anemic, the body is sometimes able to compensate and cope with that. Mm. So here, uh, as an example, my, our hemoglobin, all of us here, is probably around between 140 and 180. That's normal range for adult male. Um, and if we lost half of our blood and it went down to like 70, you would be exhausted. You would have no exercise capacity whatsoever. Um, I even feel this when I donate blood. And that only takes, you know, a half a liter of my blood. Mm. But if you were to have chronic iron deficiency because you have a chronic bleed, I, I've, I've seen blood results on kids walking around with a hemoglobin of 30. You know, 20, I've, 20 is probably the lowest I've ever seen. So, you know, the, the amount of hemoglobin that you lose is, is a big component of it. But, you know, losing the volume would be catastrophic mm, acutely right. because there wouldn't be enough in there to, for your heart to push through your circulatory system to take oxygen to all those tissues. And, and this might be a dumb question, but uh, so five, I, I mean, I'm picturing five liters of blood, which, which actually like when I hear that, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like. I feel like that that seems like a low amount, like like five, five liters. liters, man. That's a that's a lot. I know. I know. Like I'm thinking of like a two liter jug of milk and like, you know, like two and a half of those. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine know, going around in like the, the little veins yeah, in your body. Yeah, I know. I know. But then when you hear things like, you know, if you if you took the circulatory system or like the veins of your body and you stretch them out, it would like whatever it is. It goes stretch the, the, across it the goes, universe. goes around the sun back to the earth and then through the earth and up yeah. to Mars or something. Um but uh, uh, my question there, which I had, which uh, I lost for a moment. <laughs> Fuck, what was it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, God damn it. It's a, it's, it's oh, right. No, I got it. Um, our, so there's five liters of blood in me right now, let's say. Um, does my body, like, does my body create new blood? Like, what happens to blood? Does it, is it just being, you know, circulated through the body forever? Just the same five liters? Or is there a process of like you lose the blood cells and new blood cells are reborn? Like what is, what's that process? Oh yeah, sure. That's an excellent question. So remember it's your cells and protein and, and water essentially in your blood. So your, your blood cells have a finite, they have a shelf life. They only last so long. So your red blood cells, which are by far the most common blood cell, um, they live about 120 days. Hmm. So if you think of that, Every 120 days, all of the cells you have, all your red cells are going to turn over. So 120 days from now, every red cell in your body will be different from the red cells you have today. Ooh, so roughly speaking, every day you lose about 1% and replace about 1% of your red blood cells. Oh. Your, your white blood cells, they all have very variable uh, <clears throat> half-lives as well. Some of the lymphocytes can live years. Um, some of the myeloid cells might live hours to days, depending on if they've been activated or not. Mm. And then the fluid, I mean, you, you guys have cups there and you're drinking fluid, you're going to lose fluid later in the day. So there's a constant uh, uh, shift of, of fluids in and out. So I would suspect that the, the water content of your circulatory system changes over very quickly, probably every every day or, or a couple of days. Sure. Mm. Right. Cool. Uh, Neat. Does, so I'm really curious about different types of blood. I know that I have the best type. Um, because it's a plus Interesting. and so, oh, okay. well, yeah, right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, what's the, what are the differences yeah. between blood types? 
Yeah, right. Yeah, because like I, I've got a friend who like who needs a kidney transplant right now, and and it's all it all boils down, I believe, like to blood type. And um, is a plus really the best? Right. Yeah. Well, please say no, but yes, go <laughs> ahead. So, so uh, yeah, so we're talking about blood types, and the A and the plus; those are really two different, uh, two different pieces of the blood type nomenclature. So we have what's called the ABO system. So you're, everybody is either going to be A or B or A, B, or O. And, and what that refers to is whether or not you express the A antigen, which is a molecule, the A molecule on your red cells, or the B molecule, or both, and that makes you A, B, or if you express neither, that makes you O. So I'm an O person, I, I don't express the A or the B. And then the plus refers to whether or not you express another molecule that's called the rhesus factor or the D antigen, couple of names for it, and you either have it or you don't. So 85% of us have it, 15% uh, don't. So I'm O negative, so that means I don't have A or B molecules, and I don't have the rhesus factor or the, the D molecule either. Um, about the large majority of people are O or A. It's like 44, 45% of, of Canadians are O blood group, maybe 40% are A blood group. Oh wow! So leave us with maybe ten percent are B, and there's you know the AB is is the most uncommon. What, oh. What's the one that that like is it O negative? What's the one that's universal that that if you have that blood type, it doesn't matter what anybody else's type is that they can they can receive it? Or am I making that up? No, no, that's right. So my blood type O negative is the universal red blood cell donor type. Cool. And the reason is I I my blood cells don't have the A or B antigens. So if you have and if everybody is going to make um, antibodies to to the antigens they don't express on their blood, it's a bit of a funny concept. But if because I'm an O person, that means I make antibodies against A and B. So if I were to receive blood that had A or B molecules on them, my antibodies would really fight those cells and probably destroy them, and I'd get pretty sick. Okay. Mm, okay. So I can only receive O blood. <laughs> okay. But be, because my O blood doesn't have those molecules a or b my o blood cells can be given to anybody whether they're o or a or b or ab because nobody will have antibodies that want to fight off my abo blood group because right. oh you know. so now if you have ab and you donated ab to an a or a b or an o is it true that your head will explode <laughs> uh I, I've never heard of that. That'd be a case report, I think. Okay. okay. Um, but actually, but you know, the, the antibodies I just talked about, those are some of the proteins in the blood that I was referring to earlier. And an AB person is a fantastic donor for the fluid and protein part of blood or what we call plasma. So they would be a fantastic plasma donor. So their plasma would be universal. It could be given to anybody based on ABO blood group because they wouldn't have any of those antibodies uh, against A or B molecules. So it cool. sounds like Very in the cool. absence in the absence of receiving incompatible blood, the A or the B or the O is not necessarily like signifying an, a, a pro or con to your, you know, to your functionality of your body in the absence of in the absence of incompatible blood. I, is that was that the is that a correct way to think about it, or or are they Pretty imbuing much. you with any with any, you know with any pro or con? 
Well, with the exception of the APOS superpowers, no, there's there's not <laughs> there's not a lot. I mean, if you Google it, some people think blood types are something to do with you know aliens and there's all kinds <laughs> of fun, funny stuff on the web. There there are a couple Weird. of associations between blood types and susceptibility to certain infectious diseases and some of our clotting the molecules that help us clot they tend to be higher or lower in, in certain blood groups but in, in general it, it it doesn't make a difference i was your own I, personal health i was once um at a yoga teacher training and i pulled this book off of a, a shelf there called eating right for your blood type oh, uh, oh and interesting it, and and i i read it and i was like oh this is very fascinating and then i told someone about it and they were like that's totally bogus don't listen to anything in that book um but they weren't an expert. So I'm curious from your perspective, <laughs> like, is there any truth to quote unquote eating right for your blood type or is that totally a myth? So I can tell you, I've not read the book, so I don't know what the claims are. Um, but everything I know about my blood type and, and blood types in general, I, I, I can't think of a reason why food would have a big impact or why your blood type would have a big impact on how you respond to different foods. I think that was like, I think that was a big um, pseudoscience sort of like thing circulating, particularly in the yoga community, which Brian mm. and I are, are, and Jeremy are, are, are all and we're all um, very much part of. Um, it was funny because I remember the one thing about the quote, a positive, the right things to eat for a positive blood type was no meat. It was like, you should, it was the only blood type that was like, you should eat a stri strictly vegetarian diet. But I, I can't recall. I actually just flipped to the page in the book that was, or the section in the book that was like to yours about me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and and I read that, and I was like, oh, whoa, this is so cool. I didn't realize that. And I was at a yoga teacher training, so I was like, I'm gonna, I'm vegetarian anyway. And and I, I thought like the placebo effect of that um, was probably uh, had an impact for me. And then I realized that it was probably. Not true. Yeah, pseudoscience is uh, <laughs> pseudoscience is a rough is a is a rough one. Speaking of aliens, um, what is the Rh factor? So that's the rhesus factor. That's the D antigen that I mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, so that's uh, whether or not you're a, a positive. That means you do express the Rh factor, and if you're negative, you don't express the Rh factor. It's it's just another one of the molecules that we test for on the surface of red blood cells. Cool. Did um, you wait? Did you ask that because? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Like, what was the deal? What was the context for aliens? <laughs> just, just building up my own case. Don't worry. I'm just gonna take this home <laughs> with me tonight and yeah. do, some, do my own research. Yeah. Little did you know, David, you said that research. you said that piece earlier about aliens, and you were you were speak you were speaking to a believer. Hey. Um, <laughs> you'll all find out soon enough, fuckers. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. Uh, about like what I was about, I, like I said earlier, I, I'm like, I've always been, I've, I've been very fascinated with um, physiology and something in my own experience 
that I know is you know very directly tied to oxygen and the way that that oxygen gets into my blood and how that blood or, or sorry uh, how that how that oxygen gets into my blood and how that then is then like carried to my um, to my muscles um, is going up to elevation and I've been very fascinated with elevation and how <coughs> the how that very quickly changes your physiology so you know in March of, uh, of in March of this year I was in Maui. And I biked up to the top of Haleakala, um, the top of the volcano, and it's up at 3,000 meters. And once I went above 2,000 meters, like I really started to, to, I really started to change. Very, very noticeable difference to and where like my- more hair on your chest? To where like, my, no, yeah. to where my body basically, I mean, I, I, I just got a, it's like I got a new body over 2,200 meters or so. And by the time I got to 3,000 meters, I just wasn't even recognizable to myself physically um, in, the, in, in the sense of like how I was functioning. Um, like and, negatively. Yeah. Ne- oh, yes. Very negatively. Um, and I, I've been fascinated with how the body functions, starts to function at elevation um, and, how, and how people, uh, athletes in particular, how they will spend time at elevation in order to uh, create more red blood cells at elevation, come down to sea level, perform at a higher capacity. Sounds um, like cheating to me. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it basically, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, it is, it is the legal um, way to, 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 int- it's basically EPO, but in yeah. a way that is not injecting EPO into your body. Um, yep. Can you sort of, you know what? What are your what what what's your what are your thoughts on that? Or what's your um um how what is kind of happening in the body when you are putting yourselves at a different elevation where there's less oxygen in the air? And how does your blood respond to that environment? Yeah, so I think this all relates to the atmospheric pressure changes as you go up in <laughs> in altitude. Um, so at sea level, we everybody virtually everybody's at sea level all the time, give or take, and your body is used to that amount of atmospheric pressure at sea level. So think of it as the amount of pressure, like oxygen being pushed into your body to you know, put it into relatable terms. And then if you go up to high altitude, there is less pressure, less atmospheric pressure, so less of a drive to uh, make oxygen available to your body. So you're essentially being starved of oxygen. And that's why you felt crappy. That's why you'd feel crappy if you, you know, bled out uh, half of your blood volume, or that's why you feel tired after you donate blood. Um, if you spend enough time up there at low oxygen, or if you sleep in a, a, a hypobaric <laughs> chamber like athletes do, your body will get used to the fact that it's it's sensing that there's not enough oxygen. And one of the signals, someone you already mentioned the term EPO, so that's erythropoietin. Your kidneys will recognize that there's not enough oxygen. It'll make EPO to tell the bone marrow to make more red blood cells because their job is to deliver oxygen. And they'll they'll keep doing that until the oxygen level comes up to what it uh, feels as being satisfactory. And the result is you'll make more red blood cells. Um, And then you come back down from that altitude and you're at sea level again. I know pro fighters do this kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. athletes, uh, uh, triathletes. And and now you've got all these extra blood cells, so a, a, an additional capacity to deliver oxygen to your tissues. Mm. It's, it's like really, a, it's it, really cool. It is like it's such a that function 
is fascinating. It's just so like, interesting. It's just fascinating yeah. to me that you can just change your elevation for a period of time and, and then, then completely change the insides of your body. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, yeah. and it's, and it's noticeable. Like yeah. I've, I, I didn't, I, I never spent, um, like the <laughs> amount of time at elevation that you would, yeah. that would be like a prescription amount to come yeah. back and like get the maximum benefits. But you can, you know, if you spend time up around like 14, 15, 2000 meters, something like that, yeah. like you come back down and you go, Oh, I'm different. Yeah. I now, can, if you think that's cool, I got something that I think you guys are really going to be um, stoked about. So we haven't even talked about this yet, but um, uh, I would like to, I would like to kind of shift the conversation into, uh, into leukemia. Uh, I know that leukemia is one of the most common types of cancer in children and, and teenagers. And considering you work at the IWK, I'm sure this is something that you see quite often. Yeah. Um, maybe uh, before we get into uh, the selfie project, um, you can give us a, a, a quick like overview of leukemia for anybody who's, I feel like everybody's heard the word, but maybe there's people out there who don't really realize what, like what leukemia is, what does it mean? Sure. So just from the, where the word comes from, luke or leukos, I think it's from Greek for white and emia is blood. So it's essentially too much white blood cells. Hmm. Um, and I talked earlier about the two type general types of white blood cells being lymphoid or myeloid. So we recognize lymphoid leukemias and, and myeloid leukemias as really two big general categories. And uh, leukemia is, I mean, for lack of a better or, or more elaborate description, is uncontrolled proliferation and growth of your cells, your white blood cells. Mm. Um, we, you might hear the terms chronic or acute leukemia. So chronic leukemia would be where you've got too much growth of mature or fully developed cells that tends to be more of an adult disease but mm. adults certainly can get both and then acute leukemia is when the white cells that grow are very very immature so part of being immature means they haven't developed the ability to carry out any normal function so acute leukemia which is what i see at the iwk this is i, I see it in children who have too many very immature white blood cells either in their blood or we find it in their bone marrow Mm. Um, so I, I've been thinking a lot lately and I, I, the three of us really have been thinking and talking a lot lately about, um, about patient advocacy and, and, you know, in particular, we've been talking about, um, how in order for someone to start that process of advocating for themselves, one of the most important steps is to be educated and aware and have knowledge surrounding what it is that you're going through. Um, you know, so as someone who lives with cystic fibrosis, like if I had zero fucking clue what CF was all about, yet I lived with it and I never took the time to actually like try to understand what's going on with my body, then it leaves me in a, in a position where I'm a lot less comfortable and or capable of communicating with my healthcare prov prov providers in order to, you know, tell them what it is that I'm feeling in my body or in order to tell them what it is that I feel like perhaps I need in order to, um, to advocate for better health. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this, this idea of like knowledge is power when it comes to your ability to advocate for yourself is really important. Which, which is why I want to um, dive into the selfie project, what it's all about, where, where it's, you know, how it started, where this idea came to be. 
because I think it is, it's a perfect example of just that, of giving families, giving patients a little bit more insight into what it is that they are going through so that in the very least, not only will they understand their bodies a little bit more, but maybe arm them with the ability and the capacity to advocate for themselves, whether it be now or in the future as they move through their, you know, their health journey. So can you lay out the selfie project for us? And, uh, and yeah, cause it's, it's, it's really, it's really cool. Sure. And this is kind of my passion project. It's the thing I like the most about my job. Uh, so more than happy to, to talk. You might have to cut me off. So, uh, so we're, we're now October. So about a year and a half ago, May 2022, I got a phone call from uh, one of the, the nurses here at the IWK saying that, you know, a patient isn't listening. They're not, you know, behaving well for mom. They're not doing their homework while they were admitted to hospital. And uh, one of the things they asked if they could do, and I think it was kind of like, if you let me do this, I'll behave, um, is they want to see their, they want to see their cells, their leukemia cells. Can you make that happen? And that was a first for me. And I said, you know what, give me two days and I'll, I'll put something together. Um, so in, in two days, I, I, uh, I, I got the patient's pathology, their, their peripheral blood and bone marrows. I took pictures of everything. I, I labeled what all the different cells were, what they functioned as in the in normal health, and I showed what it looked like when their leukemia was diagnosed, which is essentially an absence of normal cells and an abundance of abnormal cells. But then I was also able to show them a month later, after a month of chemo, all the abnormal cells were gone. I, I call these my before and after pictures, and I love those. Yeah. Um, so I, I could show: look, the chemo worked. Your disease is gone. You cannot see it anymore. So the patient showed up and, and I, uh, I bought them a lab coat that fit them so they could be, you know, pathologists for the day with me. I went to, uh, I'm just going to grab something here. I went to our university bookstore and got some of these, um, it's a plush white blood cell. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, totally. These are made by giant microbes. Uh, and uh, so this is the, the bad leukemia cell and it turns inside out and turns oh, into a good white blood cell. Yeah, so oh. for, for, for listeners, it's this little plushie. It's the, it's like a yeah. circular plushie. Guys, this is the and cutest thing I've the ever one seen. Side, the bad leukemia cell, it's like, it's sort of gray. It's got like, it's almost like a, like a, like shag carpet, like longer pilly uh, and with like red eyes and these like red tendrils coming from it. It looks very, mm -hmm. uh, it looks scary please uh please Dominus, yeah. please uh please um, flip it flip it <laughs> and then you can flip it's reversible so you flip it you flip its mouth inside out and it turns into this like really nice plush it's soft like looking white blood cell snowman with still, red, nose. still red creepy eyes but it's smiling so it's a bit less creepy <laughs> <laughs> that's really sweet i love that yeah uh, so I, I grabbed one of these and um some of the lab techs i work with are uh one of them crochets and she crocheted uh, a white blood cell uh, herself at home and, and gave me that so that I could give to this patient. And, um, so, and, and that, that essentially was the first selfie visit. I, the, the patient and their parents came down. I had about an hour with them. I showed them all the cells, what they do, which helped understand why they felt sick when their normal cells weren't mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Um, gave them the, the cell, the, the plushie and gave them all their pictures on a USB stick so they could have those and then did a tour of the lab. And I, that was a really cool part for me too, because 
you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a figurehead. I don't do all the hard work. I have a, an army of technologists that are at the microscopes and are running the analyzers. And they're the first people that see that there's something wrong with patient's blood. Mm-hmm. And they, they bring it to me to, to help figure out what it is. But they're the front line. So we did a tour of the lab and they got to see all the different parts of the lab that contribute to diagnosing leukemia and uh, also main, you know, monitoring their health through chemotherapy. We have a blood bank here. So if they needed a blood donation, or I'm sorry, a blood transfusion, they got to see where where that happens as well. well I mean, I, I love it because it, it really reminds me of uh, earlier this year, I went to my nephew's birthday party at the Discovery Center. And the Discovery Center here in Halifax, it's like a, it's like a science center for, for kids, um, uh, kids and adults alike. Um, and there's a lot of kids, uh, but uh, there's there's a whole section about um, about about your body and like what the body is capable of. And all of the all of the the, you know, the, the sort of set pieces there are interactive. There are these things that you can like that you can interact with to um, to sort of engage your mind and your body while you're learning about how the human body works. And, you know, my nephew and his brother, they're like they're like six and four and I'm watching them interact with these little, these sort of installations. And it's so fascinating to watch them and watch their curiosity peak as they're learning about, you know, uh, the mechanics of jumping or learning about like the density of their bones or like these things that, that are really important to learn, to learn about your body. It's like, you know, it's, 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 it's an important piece of, of, you know, childhood, early childhood education and to see that a clinician has sort of implemented the same kind of idea, I just think is one of the most like I, I, I personally I think it's it's so it's so valuable. It, it's really hard to describe how valuable this kind of work is because for that kid and for those for that kid's parents, again, mm-hmm. it gives them this opportunity to, you know, it gives their kid an opportunity to to beef curious and to be fascinated about this thing that's fucking them up mm-hmm. but to have that fascination that curiosity come from a point a place that isn't shrouded in fear or confusion or you know overwhelming like data that they just mm-hmm. can't they can't sift through it yeah. allows them to, to it allows them to see it from this like really approachable vantage point which then in turn will go to have an effect on them socially you know like to be able to go to school and when the kids ask like, Hey, like, you know, where have you been, Jeff? Like you haven't been at that school. It's like, okay, I actually have things that I can say where I can feel confident in what I'm going to say. And it's not going to like, you know, have this like trickle down effect where it's going to fuck me up socially or, and it's just that there's so many aspects here that I think are so valuable. And I just it, think it's really, really neat. It, it makes me tear up like hearing that story because mm-hmm. of that, like, I like how valuable that experience is for that person. And I think back to, we were at a conference last week about cardiovascular health and there was a patient engagement specialist talking about how sometimes great ideas in healthcare come from the patients. And like mm. the fact that, you know, this person reached out and was like, Hey, I, I'd like to, <laughs> to see this, but then you saw the value in that and, and, and have been able to like recreate that experience for other people is, is, is really amazing. I want to like kind of, dig into that experience a little bit more. And, and, you know, you've, you've said that this is a, like the, the project that you're most passionate about. Um, what was it like being there with that kid and, and their family 
and sort of like seeing that transformation happen or that experience happening where, you know, they came in and, and got to experience the lab firsthand. Yeah. The, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a really powerful thing that, um, yeah, it gets to me a little bit too. Um, mm -hmm. it was great because, you know, talking about a leukemia diagnosis, when you first find out you have leukemia, I, I can't even imagine mm -hmm. how difficult that would be. Thankfully, it's not something I've dealt with. Um, but my, my mother was diagnosed with cancer and died two years ago. So I have a bit of an idea of how rough that can be. Um, I, I saw this as an opportunity to, you know, kind of just take a step back and, and give information in a controlled environment that was really designed to, you know, benefit the patient who's very young and their, and their parents who no doubt also had oodles of questions that they wish they could have asked at the time and, and just, you know, didn't have the wherewithal. Um, certainly the IWK team here, the clinicians, the nurses, and the oncologists, they're fantastic. Um, they bend over backwards to, to meet every need of these patients. Um, so I, I, you know, they're very supported, but I think this opportunity to come and visit the lab and, and see their cells and learn exactly what they look like and what they do and, and seeing the cancer disappeared after chemo, I think mm. was kind of a light bulb moment for some of these kids. Cause mm. to hear you're in remission, that's one thing, but to see your intermission, I think is, you know, the visual is pretty powerful. Totally. And, you know, that, that first visit, I, I didn't know there was going to be a second visit, but you know, <laughs> these kids, they're all on the same floor. They, they talk and, you know, a couple of days or weeks go by and I get another phone call. It's like, so-and-so heard about that visit. Now this person wants to come down and then another and another and another. And so I, you know, I, I just, I tried to build it into something like formal. So I, um, I had, a, I had a logo made. I had a selfie logo of a cell <laughs> taking their picture, and uh, I've I've started a, a fundraising campaign through the IWK Foundation. Uh, so if I can get enough funds, I the the goal is to develop an interactive video game that would put kids like in a in a bone marrow, and they'll have jobs to do based on different cells they have to collect, mm -hmm. and then a series of uh, educational animated videos to you know, just explain the things that I talk about, but Obviously, a, you know, half an hour, an hour with me is, you're not going to remember most of it, but if it's online and you can go back and visit again and, and you know, be reminded of things and take that away and, and that would make it available more broadly too. I would love to see this uh, adopted across the country may, and, and maybe more broadly. I love that. Does, um, do you ever, do you ever run into, this is like a, on the same track, but a little bit, but a little bit different. Do you ever run into the, uh, any scenarios where, you know, like a, a, you know, a child is, a child is like interested in this type of thing, but like they, but like, I, I know that some, some parents can be like quite, can feel like protective about like the type of information that mm. like a kid gets and maybe, and some people feel like some things are too much for children. Like they can't mm -hmm. absorb it or they can't, or, you know, it's too heavy or something like that. Is that ever, is that ever a, like, you know, like a bridge that you, that you come up to and have to have to negotiate with and, and, you know, like have a conversation with parents about like, you know, why it might be like how it can be valuable to, to imbue this child with, with something that maybe the parents think is like really scary for the, for the child to be kind of like let in on this like secret of like what's going on in their body. Yeah. I, I, I rely on the, my clinical colleagues who you know take care of these patients every day to have those discussions and make those determinations. Like who would be a good patient to come down and see me 
we, we obviously only go with kids who are, you know, of a certain age. I think eight or nine is probably the youngest. Mm. Um, younger than that, it's, you know, challenging to, I think might be challenging to present the information in, in a yeah. meaningful way. And, um, and certainly not everybody who is eight or older has been interested in coming down. Sure. It's just not something they want to learn more about. Um, so yeah, there, it, there have been cases where people weren't interested. Maybe they thought it was too much or their parents thought it was too much. Um, and, uh, the, the nurses and the, the hematologists and oncologists fortunately are there to support them through that decision-making. And, and I, I see the people who are happy to come down and, and have a visit. Mm, that's awesome. I, I only see the one side. I don't yeah. see the side of people who don't want it. Yeah. Do you think that this experience, you know, that this, like this, this, this experience by chance where this, you know, this kid who is, who is being a little bit of a troublemaker and, 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 somehow weaseled his way into your office uh, to, to get a tour of the cool lab. Like, do you think that this, this, this chance encounter has had, has it changed or has it had an effect on the way that you approach your work as a clinician um, or, or at least shifted the way that you view the work that you do? Um, it, it does. I, I think that very first selfie patient, very, very important to me. They they came back and visited me a couple of weeks ago. Actually, uh, doing great. Um, she's just such a sweet sweet little patient, and and their and their and their mom was with them. But I'd, I'd like to say that over the years, that this is my ninth year of being a, a pathologist. I kind of get numb to things like mm-hmm. you know, I've I've kids, young kids, and I diagnose leukemia in kids. And if you know if I I think about that, like oh the what ifs. It would drive me nuts, and I, I wouldn't be able to do this job. So I, I try to separate that from in, in my head. You know, this is a diagnosis. Don't think about my own kids. You know, leave work at work. But I had um, a, a patient who came down for a selfie visit. Um, one has one has passed away after visiting me, and that that oh, that hurt. That was really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it. But their their family has indicated many times how great the care was here at the IWK and how much the the selfie visit meant to them, mm-hmm. and it's you know it's 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 really re- renewed my interest in in building this up to be as as much as it can be. I'm certainly not the first pathologist to ever sit with a patient and show them their slides. Mm-hmm. The other pathologists here at the IWK have done it many many times for years, but I think my my attempts to streamline this into a formal experience available to every patient might be the first. Mm. So we're, we're breaking ground that way. And, and, and I, you know, these kids, I, I just want to make it as good as possible, as beneficial as possible. And we're even launching a, a research study, like questionnaire based where, you know, we, we talked to them before and after to find out, you know, how did the visit change your understanding of your diagnosis nice. or your stress level or your expectations to, to get feedback on how I can do a better job and to really substantiate the fact that, you know, this has having a positive impact. Cause mm-hmm. it's one thing to have anecdotal evidence, but if we can show consistently that the, 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 the feedback is positive, I, I think we'll really be onto something and hopefully this will catch on. Well, your, um, your, 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 your work, like, I mean, everybody's work, like, you know, I have a, I have a, I have a year and a half, a, a, a one, one and a half year old and I, and my wife's pregnant. So like I'm, I'm in, I'm in and out of the IWK, you know, periodically. And 
like from the cleaning staff to the nursing staff, to the physicians, to the lab techs, to people in your role, to the <laughs> administration in a children's hospital. I mean, like, you know, it's like you're doing, you're putting yourself in a position doing work that is, that is really, really hard for the average person to, mm-hmm. to kind of like think about and wrap their heads around because it has to do with children. And like, there's, you know, we, we, children occupy a different they occupy a different part of our psyche and mm. like, and how we think of them and treat them. And when we know that they're sick, that's, that's a, that's a hard mental place to be mm-hmm. in. So I totally understand like the separation that, that, that a lot of people have to bring to that, but um, it is hard, hard work in every, uh, in every sense of the word mm. um, on all, uh, in all aspects. So like, I, I really appreciate, I really appreciate what, like what you and, and every single person at that, uh, at that hospital are doing mm-hmm. for, for, for kids. If if I can just give you um, one piece of advice, advice about the video game, um, I know that you're probably going to get a lot of like pushback in terms of development, like it's going to have to be you know kid friendly and stuff. But you know from everything that we've seen from successful video games, like the more graphic and R rated <laughs> it can be, yeah. the yeah, better. Totally. Like yeah, totally. like, like yeah. I'm 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 imagining just like a. Like a Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, that's what we grew up on. And look at us. We're fine. Just like reskinned, <laughs> reskinned to yeah. be about, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. So like if it can be. I mean, you're yeah. all about blood. Make it gory. <laughs> yeah. Make it gory. A lot of yeah, finishing just, moves. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of finishing moves. I mean, selfishly, I just, I just want to say, David, that, um, that, you know, in doing this, we've been doing this uh, podcast for about as long as you've been a pathologist. And in the early days of doing this, um, our primary focus was just to talk to the patients, just to talk to people who are, who are living the experience of, 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 you know, a human who is sick. And, and when it evolved to a point where we started having conversations like this, where we get to speak to um, people on the side of like, you know, on the, on the side of science and, and the, the clinicians and the researchers and um, you know, the, the other side, the people on the other side of the desk from the patient, it really, I'm really grateful that we that we've been able to find ourselves in a place where we get to have these types of conversations because I think that um, it's really important for everybody else out there to hear stuff like this. It's not uncommon when we speak to people who are living with illness to you know express their frustrations with the with the healthcare system. I mean, it's no it's no surprise to anyone right now that the healthcare system across this country is struggling really hard um, and it's collapsing in many, many ways. But to hear stories like your own and to hear about the selfie project and to hear about the people that are actually doing really valuable, like invaluable, like it's, it's just, it, you cannot put a value on, on the type of work that you are providing to your patients and, and the families. Um, I'm just so grateful that we get an opportunity to like hear about this and to, put this out for people to hear because again, I think the work that you do is vitally important and, uh, and it's very clear that this is work that you love to do. So we're, this has been just an absolutely, um, an absolute pleasure of a conversation. I wish it could have been spookier, but I mean, what can you do when, when things get so gosh darn heartfelt and sweet at the end, I guess you just can't force a, uh, you know, you can't force a horror movie out of, Unless you do it out of a Disney, out of a Disney special. Unless it's a really graphic. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so fingers crossed that video game (laughs) is rated R. Uh, (laughs) Dr. David Conrad, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, if, 
if someone's listening to this and and they you know they know somebody in Halifax um, who is who is uh, struggling with like a you know leukemia or or, or a blood disorder and they want to get involved in the selfie project, what is, like what are the channels? How do they go about that? Is that something that they that they will be made aware of at the IWK or is there sort of like a, a place that they can go to, to uh, learn more? Oh, if, if, if someone, if there's a, a child in Nova Scotia who has uh, acute leukemia, leukemia of any kind, they will be treated at the IWK and, and they will no doubt hear about it um, yeah. either from other patients or, or from the nursing staff. Um, I'm always ready for the next uh, visit. You know, I, I just need like a day or two's notice and I can get everything ready. Um, and, and honestly, the other way to get involved, if, if people are got money burning a hole in their pocket, would be uh, just to donate through the IWK Foundation to the Selfie Project. It would, mm. uh, things are moving at the speed of fundraising right now, unfortunately, so a little slower than I'd like, but we will get there. There will be a video game. There will be a website with those cool educational videos at some point. Awesome. Cool. Amazing. Thanks, Thank you David. so much for your time. This is really, really nice. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, guys. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.